I want to begin today just by uh, encouraging you uh, for all of the uh, horrible posts that are on social media, for all of the uh, I'm offended at this post, these posts, all, all of the fake news, all of the memes, all of the um, pictures of people on vacation when you're not, right? For all of that, uh, Facebook isn't always bad. And sometimes it can be humbling and uh, sobering. Uh, in the case yesterday, uh, I, I was able to read a very heart-wrenching and very visceral uh, blog post about a family who is about to lose their fourth family member in a little over a year. It was providential because, as I told my wife this morning, she was the one who posted it, um, this, is a, this is a horrifying situation that could happen to anybody. And that's really one of the points of the, the post. Uh, the writer of the post told the story about her youngest sister who was diagnosed in 2016 with one of the most severe and fatal types of brain cancer. And this, this type of cancer results in death typically after 14 months. And this picture, which is taken in the last few days, is her in month 13. It lands on us. We don't even know these people, right? But it lands on us with a certain degree of gravity that has a way of cutting through all the trivialities of life, doesn't it? And seeing what looks like four sisters, and three of them saying goodbye to the one who's sick, the youngest one at that. You know, several weeks ago, we sought to tackle this question that the world poses to those who claim to believe <clears throat> in the Bible and claim to be Christians. And the question typically is phrased like this. Why do good things happen, I mean, why do bad things happen to good people? And several weeks ago, we dealt with this in a message called um, uh, Enduring Tragedy with Hope. And uh, this, this question, as we noted in that message, was posed by Rabbi Harold Kushner, and, uh, who is a, uh, an, uh, an Orthodox Jew. And he basically came up with the answer that in order to faithfully answer this question and dealing with the emotions of the people around us, that we have to diminish the character of God and say that God just can't help it. Basically, that God's an ambulance driver, that he doesn't show up until after the disaster's already happened. Well, for those of us who believe in the authority of Scripture, and for those of us who believe that the full Word of God here is the inspired Word of God to us, we, we can't settle for that answer. We can't diminish the char characteristics of God that are so clear in His Word, can we? And I would offer you that this is not a crisis, it's an opportunity for, for us, for we who believe in biblical, biblical Christianity. And whether or not we like or agree with this question and how it's phrased, it doesn't matter. It is a serious question, and we need to deal with it. And far from discounting such questions, biblical Christianity looks to God's Word with a hope-filled confidence to find some kind of answer. And last week, I cast a vision for the series with the invitation not to look at the Bible or even to look at your own life with you as the main character. In fact, the book of Genesis, as we looked at last week, it makes very clear who the main character of this story, capital S story, is. In the beginning, God. 
This is his world. John Calvin called it the theater of God's glory. That's what it is. And we are people who God has ordained with a certain degree of dignity, which is something else we saw last week in the book of Genesis. We are people who are living in God's world, in the story that God is writing. Which is why the four words below are not just creation, fall, redemption, like everything stops at the cross and we're all just wondering what's going to happen. God's already told us the end of the story, right? Which is why you have that fourth word, restoration. For God to tell us the end of the story means that God not just knows what is going to happen, it means that God is active in what is happening. You hear me? We believe this with all of our hearts and with all of our souls, and that's what we're going to get this year as we go through the Bible, a description of the character of God and a distinct understanding of how He has made us with dignity because we've been created in His image. We saw last week, Genesis 127. And I hope you and your family dove into what that means this week. We had some phenomenal discussions as a family. You'd amazed, be amazed at what, what kind of wisdom and insight that comes from children. As my daughters ask me these questions that none of you have ever asked me, right? Keep me on my toes. Just keep on praying for me. Because if they're like this, when they're this age, I'm scared to death of what it's going to be like in a few years, right? But we saw this, that God created man in his own image. That basically we are mirrors meant to reflect the character and the creativity of the God who created us. And we're supposed to go out and build into this world. But we also saw that we are... While we are made in His image, we are eternally scarred by Adam and Eve's choice to disobey God. And what this, what this means is that they tried to fulfill uh, their commission that God had given them. They tried to define life on their terms and not on God's terms. And now we are faced with a life in God's world that if, we're, if, we, if we take Scripture for what it really is, this world is not as God intended it to be. And while the world talks about evolution, the evolution of humanity, the Bible describes and paints a picture of the devolution of, hum of humanity. We are not rising. Instead, we have fallen. The stories of the flood, the Tower of Babel, Sodom and Gomorrah, they all illustrate this on a large scale. But then we saw last week that God has not left us alone. In Genesis chapter 12, the hinge point of the entire book of Genesis, God begins the process of bringing about a deliverer, a rescuer. And we don't know all the details in the beginning of the story, but instead we're supposed to read the rest of the book of Genesis and the rest of Scripture knowing that God is faithful and He's patient with us as broken individuals. He has not based the fulfillment of His promises on our strength. Rather, He is committed to Himself fully to bringing His story to pass. And so this year, as we're working our way through His story, we're not going in the sequence that you'll find in the table of contents in your Bible. And I'm doing this intentionally because I want to keep you on your toes. If you've ever read through the Bible or if you've just been in Sunday school for a year or more, you've done some kind of, you've been challenged to read the Bible through or you've done individual book studies that are just, maybe you'll do Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament, and all of those are great. But the fact is, is that God's story is worth us being creative in our understanding of it and diving into it and looking at it from different angles so that we can understand how it all fits together. And that's why we're doing it chronologically 
instead of sequentially. And if you want to know why the book of Job is considered to be the oldest book in the Bible, even though some of the dates, uh, I mean, some of the stories of Genesis predate, obviously, any human being, because in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But Job is considered to be one of the oldest books in the Bible, and I've, on, on your sheet there, I've listed why, some of the different reasons why, and so you can take a look at those a little bit later on. But I've also, we also mentioned last week that there are these graphics on the back, right? And um, if you came in through our women's wing, you noticed that I've, I've uh, exploded these graphics on larger sheets of paper, and I put uh, these little strange things like what's on the screen. And, uh, and actually, the reason that I've got this on the screen is because these, these are on the sheets in the hallway. And if you're walking by or if you've got a smartphone and you want to uh, engage and watch that graphic be drawn before your very eyes and have the men who who illustrated it, actually walk you through illustration by illustration, then you can take your smartphone, if you've got a, a recent smartphone, and in fact, it'll even work right here. And it says, oh, it's detected, it's called a QR code, and I press it, and it takes me, and it immediately goes through the video that... It's a profound and very unique book in the Bible. It's mentioned on the QR code, okay? So that way, we take out the middleman. You don't have to worry about, I can't find it on YouTube, or whatever. Go scan the QR code with your smartphone. It'll take you right there. Your kids, listen, I took a picture. I wish I could, I meant to, I meant to put it on the screen. I took a, Andy, you're trying it. It's going to come, it's going to come alive on you. Uh, but I, I took a picture of my kids this week watching the two videos that explain the Genesis graphic. Y'all, y'all know my kids, right? Six, eight, ten, and twelve. Enamored is the only word that I can use to describe their level of interest in, in, in these graphics. So why, why, why go through all of this? Because we live in a culture where media drives home a point. And oh, there's some great points to be made to understand the Word of God like this. And so please take advantage of that. And take advantage of the discussion questions at the bottom. Like I said, we sat around a, a little fire I built outside last night and talked about what it meant to be made in the image of God. We talked about how when Adam and Eve were... I mean, these are the stuff we didn't go over last week. We talked about how when Adam and Eve were in the garden, that they just ate the fruits and vegetables that, were, that they grew, that they harvested, and that were on the trees. But when Noah got off the boat, he told them they could eat meat. Praise God. <laughs> did you know that? If you did the discussion questions, if you did your homework, you'll know it. You'll know these things. And it's funny, it's, it really is interesting that right after he told us we could eat meat, he also gave the very foundation for the human understanding of a capital punishment. In the very next verse, right? So if you engage beyond what we're doing here, your studying, your knowledge of God's Word, it, it, will, it will greatly advance this year. And that's the whole goal. And so... As we dive into the book of Job, before, really before we dive into the book of Job, I want to use, uh, I, I want you to understand something important about the Old Testament in general. Now, we didn't have to do this last week because Genesis is the first book of the Bible. It's, it, it literally means beginning, right, or origin. And so all of us know that Genesis should be first. But why, uh, why is Job in the middle, right? Why, why is it in the middle? If it's one of the oldest books, why is it not uh, after the book of Genesis? Well, we, I want you to understand 
that the Old Testament, the Hebrew uh, acronym that is used for the Old Testament is called Tanakh. Everybody say Tanakh. Okay, Baptist Church, we're all speaking in a foreign tongue. Okay, so don't be scared. All right, so Tanakh. This is an acronym that breaks down the three sections of the Old Testament. The Hebrew people, uh, the, the, the people who codified or put the Old Testament together in book form, they, broke it, they put the, the books in these three different groupings. The T-A in Tanakh means Torah, which is the Hebrew, the Hebrew word for law. So when you hear about people talk about the law and the prophets... That's because Torah is the law and Nevi'im is prophets. You get that? So Tanakh, this is an acronym. Torah is the law, the first five books, which provide the foundational story for why Israel is in existence. That's what the first five books do. They provide a foundation for the world, for God, for humanity, for creation, for everything. And then it bridges into Israel like we saw last week. And those first, first five books tell us about Israel. And why Israel is in existence. And then the prophets come along as the mouthpieces of God to Israel, explaining certain things about Israel's calling, about how they've strayed, about how they need to repent. And so they grouped all the uh, prophetic writings together. And typically we we think about the major prophets, which are not major in the sense that they were more important, but they're just longer books. So Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, all major prophets. And then you go to the minor prophets, which are the ones that we all struggle to find when somebody says, turn to like Habakkuk, and you're like flipping through for 10 minutes trying to find it. Because it's a really small, I mean, we all face these things, even pastors, right? So uh, we, th- that's exactly what the, how the prophetic writings are divided up, major and minor prophets. And then you come to this... this uh, this last section, the K, called the Ketuvim, which literally means the writings. The writings. And within the Ketuvim, the writings, we find a group of books known as the wisdom literature. Now, the wisdom literature is made up of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs, which is also called the Song of Solomon. Now, this wisdom literature, it's literally at the heart of the Old Testament in both position and in attitude. It doesn't tell us any uh, new event. It doesn't tell us about any new events. It doesn't give us any new laws. It doesn't tell us any more history about Israel. Instead, what it does is it puts wisdom and worship on display at a personal level. Let me say that again. The wisdom literature puts wisdom and worship on display at a personal level. The Psalms, consider this, the Psalms are the prayer book of Israel. They show us the vibrancy of personal and corporate worship in the lives of those who spend time in the presence of God. Many of the Psalms are written by David, and and there were some that were written by others. But that's the private, the corporate and individual worship and prayer book of Israel. And then you go to the Song of Songs, which bookends the wisdom literature. And whereas the Psalms showed this vibrancy and this intimacy between man and God or woman and God, Song of Songs shows the vibrancy and intimacy between man and woman in covenant marriage. That that should help you understand why they bookended the wisdom literature with I mean, with, uh, I mean, yeah, book ended it uh, with Psalms and uh, the Song of Songs. And so 
There are these three books, though, that are in the middle, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And each of these books offer three different but cooperating perspectives on how to live well in God's good world. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job offer three different but cooperating perspectives on how to live well in God's world. It's like three different angles on this concept of living well in God's world. And Proverbs operates off the conviction that God is just and that God is wise. And in his design and governance of the human life, he displays that justice and wisdom. And, and the promise of the book of Proverbs is that those who submit to the wisdom of God, they tend to live better in this life, don't they? I mean, if, you, if you've ever done the read uh, one chapter of Proverbs for every day of the month, right? There's 31 chapters, so a lot of people uh, will read one chapter a day. Then the wisdom there is just extremely practical, is it not? It's just extremely practical, and that's one of the reasons it was written. If you, if you want to think about Proverbs as a person, think about Proverbs as the vibrant young teacher who has all of these wonderful bits of wisdom about every area of life. That's the book of Proverbs. Then you go to the book of Ecclesiastes. Think of Ecclesiastes, if you want to think about it as a character, think about it as a uh, sharp, middle-aged critic. Pessimist, if you will. And what Ecclesiastes does is Ecclesiastes builds, and this is, this is so important. I, I didn't realize this about, the, about Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job until this week, okay? So just, I went a master's degree in seminary, but I didn't learn this, okay? So I'm, you're, you're getting the, the good stuff. This is, this, is not, this is not fluff. It's not extra. This is actually one of the main parts of the message here, okay? And so the reason that Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature, even though it's extremely pessimistic and in some places very dark, is because Proverbs, the view of life in Proverbs, is just a little too simple. It's a little too black and white. Because the, the promise of Proverbs is that those who are wise will live well. And the book of Ecclesiastes comes along and says, the wise sometimes suffer while the foolish prosper. And as you read that, and read about how life isn't fair, and read about Solomon saying that life is unpredictable and hard to comprehend, just like a puff of smoke, then it makes you really wonder, is God really just? And that's why the book of Job was written. Proverbs, the wise live well. Ecclesiastes, not always. And the book of Job comes alongside to answer this question fully in the person of Job. Which is why so many people, when they look at the wisdom literature, they love it because they can identify with a person. You get stuck in numbers like we talked about last week and you just fall flat on your face in your yearly Bible reading program because you're wondering, what in the world does this have to do with me? When the wisdom literature, as you're reading, even reading Job and about all his trials, what happens is, is that you begin to identify with Job. And you begin to put yourself in Job's place. You begin to draw wisdom for your life from Job. And that's the function of the wisdom literature. And so we need to understand that there's a purpose. And we'll even dive into this more when we go through Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. But you need to understand this is why Job is where it is in the Bible. Is it's seeking to answer all of these questions. This wisdom literature is very specific. And so let's look specifically now at the story 
of Job. And so you're on the first page of the book of Job, Job chapter 1. The book of Job, you need to know, is broken down into three main sections. An introduction, a conclusion, and in the middle, this large, long section of dense Hebrew poetry. That is really tough. If you're reading chronologically through the Bible this year, I'm in the middle of Job. It's tough, okay? It's tough. Let's just be honest. It's very, very dense. It's easy to lose your place, and you're wondering, is this right? Is this wrong? Is this one of Job's friends? We know those guys didn't have a right view of everything. It's just tough, which is why this message, I hope, will help you as you endure reading through it. And so, introduction, a conclusion, and then this middle section filled with all this Hebrew poetry. Now, in the introduction, verses 1 through 5, we get this description of Job. And just to summarize it for you, Job, you need to know, is not a member of any of the tribes of Israel. Job is a non-Israelite. He's very wealthy, but we also see that he is very God-centered. Because as Job's children are partying, as they're enjoying celebrating life together, Job is concerned with their sin. So we see Job is a very God-fearing individual. Now, if you just take that part of the prologue of the book of Job, and then you take it to Proverbs, what should Job's life look like? Well, Proverbs chapter 21, 21 says, Whoever pursues righteousness and kindness will find life, righteousness, and honor. So what should Job's life look like? Job's life should be pretty free of suffering. Job is wealthy. Job has a wife and kids. He has tons of possessions. Job should be fine. He does what's right, and therefore what's right should come by him. And so if, if you're tracking with us where we're going through the wisdom literature, as you, as you read this prologue to Job, you're like, hey, Job's a great guy. I kind of like Job. kind of like to hang out with Job one day. Well, then you're transported out of earth and into this divine realm. It's, it's, it's the throne room of heaven. Uh, some people call it the divine command center. And it's almost like if there are a bunch of Baptists up there, it's like an executive committee meeting uh, going on between God and his angels. That's, that's really what it is. And all of a sudden, we're introduced to this character in verse 6. It says, and Satan. Everybody say Satan. Let's go ahead and get that out of the way. Okay, Satan also came among them. Now, at this point, Everybody who's a serious-ish student of God's Word says, where did he come from? Kind of like last week with the serpent. Where did the serpent come from? Why is he in God's garden? I thought everything was good. What? 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 what, what? We get that way. And in the same way, we're like, where? Where, where did this guy come from? Satan's not supposed to be in the presence of God? Well, you need to know that the name Satan is not actually capitalized like this is a bad guy who walks in like with his own theme music to heaven, okay? That's not the picture we get here. It actually says the Satan, which means literally the accuser or the adversary. It's capitalized because there's that definite article, the, in front of it. So it seems like that the writer of Job is talking about a specific person. And you're thinking, well, still, where did he come from? Keep, go sign up for the updates on the website. I'm going to post an article about it later on this week. Okay, so, so just, you know, keep, keep going with it. And so, after we see Satan come forward, Satan basically, just to summarize this section, God 
is approached by the accuser, and the accuser looks and says that Job's love for God is based solely upon he's, the fact that he's healthy and he's wealthy. And God says, well, he seeks me. Job prays to me, and Satan says, oh, he only does that because he's got possessions. Take those possessions away, you'll see his true colors. And so God incredibly gives Satan, the accuser, permission to go and to afflict Job. And in a single day, Job loses all of his children and all of his possessions. And yet, look at chapter 1, verse 21. Chapter 1, verse 21, we see that we read this verse at funerals because it's such an incredible testimony of what faith in God in the midst of suffering looks like. Job proves Satan wrong and that at the end of losing his children, at the end of losing his possessions, Job says at the end of verse 21, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So who won round one? God or Satan? God did, right? Job's faith is intact. It says in verse 22, And all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And so Satan says, Oh, that's because he's still got his health. You take his health away, he'll curse you. And so God permits Satan to take Job's health away, and then he would curse God. So God permits this, and Job is left in a pile of ashes, scraping his sore-filled body with a piece of pottery, broken probably from one of the houses or buildings that the wind blew down. And yet, even when Job's own wife comes up, look in verse 10. If you don't mind underlining, you need to underline verse one, chapter 1, verse 21, and chapter 2, verse 10. Because look at Job's faith still. But he said to her, said to his wife, who's just looked at him and said, hey, you just need to curse God and die. And in verse 10, Job looks at her and he says, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Round two, the Lord. And so at this point, Job's three friends show up. Verse 11. Now, like Job, these three friends are not members of the tribes of Israel, right? And what these three friends basically represent is the collective wisdom of the ancient world in that day. In the story, that's what they represent, the collective wisdom of the ancient world in that day. And so in the worldly wisdom, they show up and they say, we got the answers, buddy, we're here for you. Now, to their credit, before that, we noted this in the last message, right, that they spent seven days and nobody said a word. So they didn't, they didn't immediately come and say, well, Job, we got the answers. They came, they wept with Job, they mourned with Job, they grieved with Job. And in chapter 3, after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And so, basically, the, I mean, and, and if, you, if you have your little sheet, you can look on the graphic on the back. Right under the words that say big assumption, right? Chapters 3 through 28... Chapters 3 through 28 basically consist of Job making an argument, one friend responding, Job responding to the friend, the other friend responding, and then Job responding to that friend, and then the third friend responding, and then Job responding again. Chapters 3 through, through, through 28, that's all you get. 
Job, friend, Job, friend, Job, friend, Job. So for those of us who are stuck in the middle of that process, lights at the end of the tunnel. Just know what's coming. Job, friend, Job, friend, Job, friend, Job. And so basically their assumption is this. God is just and the world operates this way. See if this sounds familiar to you because it's got a modern day name. This is the way that Job's friends and Job look at the world. When you do good things, guess what happens? Good things. And when you do bad things, guess what happens? Bad things. Right? Chapters 3 through 37, this is what you get. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. You do good, you get good. You do bad, you get, you get bad. Now, what's this called in our day and age? Karma. Is there anything new under the sun, to quote Solomon Ecclesiastes? No, there's not. Job, the oldest book in the Bible, spouts off something that Oprah might do a show about and act like it's new. It's not new. The Bible addressed this question before Jesus was ever born in the book of Job. This is the collective wisdom of the ancients. This is the view of Job. And yet this is the exact same view that the book of Ecclesiastes noted is not true. Right? We mentioned that earlier. This view is wrong. Because in all of the back and forth, and Job really actually getting to the point where he is accusing God of being unjust, and he's accusing God of being a bully, and he's accusing God of being things that are not very godly, in light of all this, which, it, let's, let's face it, if you've ever been in the deepest, darkest hole of suffering, that's very likely. Can we be honest about that today? Have you ever heard a pastor say that being in the, in the deepest, darkest parts of your suffering, you can identify with Job, and don't be, because we're going to see this in a minute, don't think that God is afraid of you in some way, shape, or form. Like God, God is not, is not like, ooh, I cannot believe he said that to me. Oh, no, you didn't. I mean, that, that, is, that is not the way the king of heaven responds, okay? God may, God may look and say, that's really actually pretty wrong, like he's going to do to Job here in a few chapters. But God's not threatened by you, so what does that mean? Don't afraid to be honest. Don't be afraid to be honest. Do you hear me? Moving from pastor to, to, to counselor, unofficial counselor, when you're hurting, don't think that you're doing yourself any good to try to hide it from God or your church family. Please. Because if you're hurting and we don't know it, we can't help you. Amen? Come on now, you can do better than that. This, this is real life, folks. This is real life. This is, this, is, this is your coworker that you've been wondering how to reach. God's trying to speak to you today to show you how. This is that age-old burning that you've had in your own heart about your own suffering. God is speaking to you right now about this very thing. So, so, so listen. Chapter 38. Oh, let me back up. Because Job has a fourth friend who's a little late to the party. Named Elihu. 
Now, once again, we're not Hebrew scholars here, but what you need to know about Elihu is that Elihu, of all the people that we've mentioned in the story so far, all the human characters, Elihu has a Hebrew name. I haven't read this anywhere, okay? And I'm not a Hebrew scholar. But I think, based on what we saw last week about God's desire to pour out blessing through the lineage of Abraham, I think Elihu is the sole Israelite in the story. The sole, the sole member of Abraham's family who's coming, not with all the answers, because Elihu doesn't show up and say, I've got the answers, I know, I know this God who's doing this to you. He doesn't do that. All he looks at Job and says is that, hey, be careful accusing God of being unjust, because God's not unjust. And you need to recognize, Job, this is what he says, you need to recognize, Job, that God may allow suffering in your life for a variety of reasons. It's not about this karma junk that your friends have been talking about. That's what Elihu says. He says God could, God could bring suffering in your life to distract you from the path you're on because there's sin down there, there's destruction down there, and God uses suffering to slow you down and help you cherish the things that are real in this life. Or God might be allowing suffering to come into your life. Or if you were here on Wednesday night, we'd talk about Jesus. And in and, and John chapter 4, at the end of John chapter 4, where the official son got sick, and we ended by saying, hey, guess what? The official was the first one who got saved, but his son was the one who gets sick. got sick. Sometimes your suffering may not even really, first and foremost, be for you. You ever thought about that? You might come on Wednesday nights. You get a blessing, I promise. That, that is... That is some of the, those are some of the things that Elihu is trying to say. Maybe God's allowing suffering to build character in your life, Job. And then in chapter 38, something awesome happens. God shows up. Job presents his case before God. He says, God, come and let me. I've, I, I'm, I'm, I'm innocent. You need to answer me, God. And so what does God do? God says, it's time. Gird your loins like a man. And in chapter 38, as God, you can turn there, chapter 38, as God shows up, as you're turning, I want to tell you this. God doesn't come with a list of answers to Job's list of questions. You hear me? When God shows up, He doesn't show up saying, Job, I have cataloged all your accusations and all your struggles, and here I have a detailed answer list for you. God doesn't do that. In fact, he doesn't even explain the conversation that he and Satan have in Job chapter 1 and 2. You want to know what God does? God reveals his majesty and his glory to Job. In a series of questions, he blows Job's, Job's mind with how beautiful and how complex this world is. And then he gives the example of these two beasts known as the behemoth and the leviathan that he created as an example of how wild and dangerous that this world is being cast into sin by Adam and Eve. That's the whole reason that he mentions those two animals. is to, is to say, this world is not safe. Job, what are you thinking? Job, do you know how deer are born? That's one of the things he mentions. Do you know how goats graze? He mentions that too. Do you, do you know how complex this universe is? Guess what, Job? I spoke all of them into existence and you weren't there. 
He doesn't answer Job with detailed answers to his questions. He reveals himself. And he tells him, that because we know the rest of the story, that suffering exists because of the presence of sin, and yet God can and does use even the dangerous and deadly things of this world for the good of his people. Remember Joseph last week? Summarizing the entire book of Genesis by saying to his brothers, what you intended for evil, God intended for good, so that many people would be saved. That is the, that is the story of Genesis, and in some ways, that's the story of Job as well. That's, that's one of the answers that we have when we come to Job. And then at the end of chapter 41, flip to the end of chapter 41. At the end of chapter 41, God's explanation is finished. He hasn't answered Job's question. He hasn't explained the situation. He hasn't defended his actions to afflict Job or even explain some grand purpose for his suffering. And yet when we find Job start responding in Job chapter 42, we, we don't see Job angry. Incredibly. We don't see him having angst with God over unanswered questions. Instead, do you know what we find him doing? After God has spoken, Job worships. Think of all this man has lost. Think about your own spouse telling you to abandon your faith and curse God. Think about not holding just one, but all of your children as they lay lifeless in your arms. Job demanded answers. But God didn't answer Job in a way that he thought he should. God answered Job in a way that God thought was right. And it turns out it was. Because the only way that you can worship is you have a full perspective of God and by faith a satisfied soul. And so Job worshipped. God knew that the answer to Job's suffering was not details. It was revelation. God's purpose in Job's suffering and in ours is not to give us an explanation, but don't miss this. It's to give us himself. Let me say that again. God's purpose in our suffering is not to give us explanations. It's to give us himself. And in the final words of Job chapter 42, we see God commending Job, saying that Job has spoken truthfully about him. In verse 7, chapter 42, Job has spoken truthfully about God. And we see God delighting in the rest of chapter 42. Hear this, because this is so important. We hear God commending Job for struggling and for being honest in prayer. And then it ends in verse 17, and Job died. An old man and full of days after the Lord restored Job's fortunes, not as a reward for what he had been through, but just by grace. And that's the story of Job. And so what have we seen? Just in a brief summary. But I will tell you, if you're getting a little groggy, this is where it gets really, really good. We've seen and we've heard that God is sovereign. In fact, another verse you could underline, Job chapter 42, verse 2. The first words out of Job's mouth after God has spoken to him and after he's seen this grand vision of who God is, he says, I know that you can do all things. 
and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Is God all-powerful? Yes. And it's not a point of debate. It's an entry point for worship. It's the first cry of a heart consumed with a revelation of Jesus. Because that's the only way that Job could have seen God and lived. Is that in that moment, God looked forward to the cross and covered Job with the blood of Christ so that he was not consumed by God's character and wrath. And this is the truth that we saw last week in the book of Genesis, that God holds all power, and yet he desires to reveal himself to us, which means that he invites us into a relationship with him. But that relationship, far from the popular health and wealth prosperity gospel preachers, that relationship is not just about the joyful good times and good feelings that you experience in this life, because let's face it, this world is not just filled with joyful, fluffy good times, is it? In fact, for a lot of people, this world is filled with immense suffering, trial after trial after trial. In every arena of life, it seems to be coming at you. And yet, the fact that God wants to use suffering is what we get from Job. God wants to use this suffering that we most definitely will face in this world to help us find peace in His presence. He is committed, committed to building our confidence in the truth. And this very truth that what Satan, the Sabaeans or Chaldeans, which are the two tribes that came and destroyed Job's possessions, that whatever Satan or this world means for evil, that he will use it for our good. God will use it for our good and for his glory. Today as we've talked through Job, have you seen this? I hope you've seen it. Because thousands of years later, I want to end the same way I began and tell you about how this woman, who for all I know, this, her baby sister could have died during this service. Guess what conclusion she drew? The same one as Job. You see, in life we're tempted to write our own definitions of good, of riches, of health, and of wealth. But have you ever thought about, and this is the conclusion the lady came to yesterday, have you ever thought about, what if God is a different definition of good than you do? What if riches in God's dictionary is defined differently than it is in, in the dictionary that you operate with? What if wealth, in God's eyes, has nothing to do with physical possessions? What if life, as we've defined it, God looks at and says, Oh, my child, there's so much more. The book of Job shows us that God is committed to using the worst instances of suffering that we can experience in this world to take his sovereign, almighty, loving hand and erase, open up our dictionary and erase our definitions with the trials that we face in this life. But in the same moment, you know what he does? Clicks his pen and he begins to write. And what does he write? Truth. He writes things as they really are.
and as they should be in our lives, but we're so consumed with our definition of life that we're almost scared to let him do that. Because God doesn't just want to use suffering. He wants to just use you spending time in his presence. That's why Jesus died, so you have access again into the presence of God. And so God wants to use just the normal day-to-day sanctification process of you spending time in his word and then responding in faith and obedience to transform you and let, let him write those definitions without pain and without tears, but because of the nature of this world, guess what? guess what we have in this life? Pain and tears and pain and tears and trials and struggles and physical ailments and death, 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 right? That's what we have. That's where we are. But I have news for Rabbi Harold Kushner. God doesn't show up as an ambulance driver because in actuality, it's God carrying us through it as a father. This is the conclusion that the lady who wrote the blog post came to. Is that as she's watching, this is how she puts it, as her little sister is smelling more and more like heaven, then guess what's happening? God's erasing her definition of life and health and riches and good. And he's writing in his own definition, which is true. But even as Mandy and I were talking about that this morning, and she's in the nursery, so I can say this, but when she posted that article yesterday, she came to me and she said, I could have written that article. (laughs) That's how deeply it resonated with her. And as we were talking about that, even this morning, light bulb, right? Not only does suffering bring fellowship with God, you know what else? You know who else suffering brings fellowship with, or at least it's meant to bring fellowship with? It's your family. This is a problem. Just Can I be honest for a second? It's a problem. Because what is Satan whispering in your ear that you need to do every time you enter into the doors of this church? Act like everything's okay. You're not struggling. You're fine. Things in life are okay. You didn't spend the last two days crying. I mean, am I the only one who senses that? Is that real for you too? So what's something else that God's trying to do in the midst of our suffering besides bring us into his presence? As I looked at that picture, I don't even know those people. But this morning in my office, I'm looking at that picture of those four sisters with one dying, and I I just started crying. I don't know them. I've never been through that situation. But the common thread of suffering throughout all of our lives, you know what it does? It weaves us together in a way that you really can't even explain. So don't try to hide. Don't, don't, don't try to wear a mask. Be honest with the people around you.
And for those of you who are around people who are suffering, I've included an article for you on the back of the bulletin today. Because this article points out the fact that most of us, when our friends suffer, we tend to be like Job's friends more than we realize it. Why are you suffering? You must be doing something wrong. Why'd your child go astray? They may not ever say it, but the thought process is, you must have been a bad parent somewhere along the way. Can anybody else be honest and say that they, they've done that? I've done that. I've done that recently. The series isn't just meant for you, I promise. It's blowing my mind week after week after week. And so I don't, I don't even know really how to end today except just to invite you that as we stand to sing in a moment this hymn of response, Only Trust Him, that it's not you singing to other people, it's you preaching to your own soul. Because this is where we are. It's not about you, it's not about me, it's, about, it's where we are. God's story has once again defined our story and is uniting us. And so let it unite us in worship.